Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the latest updates from the front line, discuss Western thinking on Ukraine's increasingly complex logistical supply train, and interview Richard Woodruff, a British volunteer chef who spent most of 2022 cooking food for Ukrainian soldiers on the front lines at the Frontline Kitchen in Lviv. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 27th of January, day 338. And with me to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, and from Frontline Kitchen in Lviv, Richard Woodruff. I started by asking Francis to talk us through the latest news from Ukraine. Thanks, David, and welcome back to all of our listeners around the world. On the battlefield, we are hearing that Russian forces appear to have conducted probing attacks near the Ukrainian cities of Orokiv in the Zaporizhia region and Volodar in the Donetsk region. However, according to Britain's regular intelligence update today, they are unlikely to have achieved substantive advances. Now, I should add that both sides, Ukraine, Russia, have acknowledged activity in these places, the heads of uh, the head of the Russian controlled part of Ukraine's Donetsk region said on Wednesday that units of the Wagner group were advancing in the town of Bakhmut. And according to a senior Ukrainian official yesterday, fighting in Bakhmut and in Volodar was growing fiercer. In other news in the military space, it's all tanks again this morning. So we hear that the UK have confirmed that British tanks will arrive in Ukraine on time for the expected Russian spring offensive, joining, of course, the German-made Leopards being sent to Kiev within weeks. We'll have more on the exact tank tally on Monday. But the other big update this morning is Poland have confirmed that they will send 74 main battle tanks, slightly higher number, I think, than people expected initially, to Ukraine in a bid to further bolster the defences of the country ahead of this expected offensive. Now, Joe has written more, uh, has written up on this, and so I'm sure they will have many more details. I'm just giving you the, 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 the core facts here. So Warsaw are planning to send 14 German-made Leopard 2s as well as 60 modernised Soviet-era tanks from its stocks. Now, just to contextualise this, of course, Poland were the first NATO country to donate, donate tanks to Ukraine initially when the invasion began. They sent, I think, think around 260 Soviet-built T-72s to its neighbour. So quite interesting developments this morning and ones that no doubt uh, will be carrying on uh, updating listeners on throughout the coming days and indeed weeks. 
I mentioned the Zaporizhia region, and this seems like an opportune moment to return to the question of its nuclear power plants, which, of course, we were discussing extensively at the end of last year due to concerns of military activity around the plant. Things have been fairly quiet there in recent weeks, but there is an update this morning. The UN's nuclear watchdog has reported powerful explosions near Ukraine's Russian-occupied power station. Raphael Grossi, head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, has said, and I will quote in full, Yesterday, eight strong detonations were heard at around 10am local time, causing office windows at the plant to vibrate, and more were audible today. The establishment of a protection zone is ever more urgent and needed. This is an active combat zone. This nuclear power plant with six reactors is lying on a front line. I don't know for how long we're going to be lucky in avoiding a nuclear accident. So very strong words from him. Russia have denied accusations that they are not upholding nuclear safety at the plant on their controlled territory. Now, the other thing is is that he was saying uh, several days ago some similar remarks, and there was some quite interesting commentary that came out of uh, certain other European capitals. So a German MEP, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in that country, said for months Russian armed forces have been using Ukrainian power plants as safe havens to store ammunition and launch attacks on neighbouring areas. A French MEP also said we do not hope negoti- we do hope sorry we do hope negotiations will conclude shortly, allowing for early establishment of a protection zone. And it seems that the concern of the UN is that Zaporizhia is still a potential flashpoint in the war. That's their term, not mine. And Grossi, again, has made other remarks this week where he said it has been quite a bizarre situation. A Ukrainian facility in Russian controlled territory managed by Russians, but operated by Ukrainians. We've had serious cases of direct shelling, especially late August and then in November, when we had another two days of direct bombing shelling. So, of course, we'll keep listeners updated on this question. Sometimes if we're not covering it on the podcast, that doesn't mean that we're not We've not got an eye on it. It just means that there's not masses to say. But clearly there are some growing concerns about an increase in activity there. So something that we will inevitably return to again at some point, David. Thank you, Francis. Yes, I think if this carries on, we'll definitely talk to Hamish Bratton-Gordon, uh, a regular on the podcast. Um, he, he, he's got a, very much his, both his, his eyes trained on what's happening in Zaporizhia. So thank you, Francis. Can I just ask you to talk to one more thing before I go to Joe? Um, we, we've spoken a lot about the uh, delivery of Western tanks to Ukraine this week and, and last week. Um, there's been some, we, we, we saw the initial Russian reaction uh, in the last few days, but there's been a bit, bit, bit more, and I think it's worth commenting on because you can see how the, the Russian narrative, propaganda, sort of propaganda narrative is framing this. Um, Francis, can you talk to that? Yes, well, some quite interesting remarks out of Moscow this morning. So Russia have said that the promised delivery of Western tanks to Ukraine is evidence of growing, quote, direct involvement, close quote, of the United States and Europe in the war. And I'll read the quote from Dmitry Peskov, of course, uh, the Kremlin spokesman in full. There are constant statements from European capitals and Washington that the sending of various weapons systems to Ukraine, including tanks, in no way signifies the involvement of these countries or the alliance in hostilities in Ukraine. I should say, I I don't think that's, that's, uh, that's true, but nonetheless, this is what he's saying. We categorically disagree with this. And in Moscow, everything the alliance and the capitals I mentioned are doing is seen as direct involvement in this conflict. We see that this is growing. 
Now, I'm wondering whether the phrasing of this, as you allude to, David, is to play to the German anxieties that we spoke about at length last week. Uh, we understand that they may have wanted US cover uh, once it became clear that they had little choice but to mit- permit other countries to send their leopards to Ukraine, as well, of course, as, as sending their own. Ultimately, Russia are frustrated, I think it's fair to say, about the Western strategy and the gradual ramping up of munitions donations in terms of their grade, their number, their quality and quantity. It's worked in a way that there's never been a crisis point that's been triggered by it. There's never been a moment where Russia have been able to justifiably say this is a step too far because it's happened incrementally. If that had happened where tanks or jets had been sent from day one, we might be in a very different situation. And as I've said before, there is a part of me that thinks this might be a broader Western strategy, a drip, drip, drip. That means the nuclear threat can never be justifiably made by Russia. But of course, I think it's important to say that it works both ways. Russia has done its own form of gradual escalation or drip, drip, drip. And when I say escalation, I'm talking about an increase in the number or quality of weaponry or the tactics adopted. Russia's brutality has increased, especially in its attacks on cities. The absence of red lines in this war has consequences for both sides. So I just wanted to touch again on this interesting theme and one, as I say, no doubt we will return to in due course. Well, thank you very much for all of that, Francis. Joe Barnes, uh, our Brussels correspondent, can I come to you? Is there anything, before I go with my first question, is there anything you wanted to add to anything Francis said? Um, I know you know you, you wrote the story about the Polish tanks. Uh, yeah, well, um, hi everyone. I will start on the tanks. So for 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 a long time, as Germany were kind of holding out and refusing to make a decision, um, the Polish Prime Minister Morawiecki would often talk about we will be sending tanks anyway, regardless of permission. So I'm guessing the um, the sixty kind of Soviet era, Soviet built tanks, which have been upgraded in Poland since they've gotten got better armor, better like stabilizing mechanisms, better targeting systems, and stuff like that. So it's a it's an it's an up an upgraded um, T seventy two, I believe. So that's that's interesting. That that's probably what the Poles were talking about when they said we were going to send tanks regardless. And this is a sixty of these being sent on top of. The 14 Leopard 2s, the German-made tanks, which have kind of caused all the controversy over the last few months. But it, yeah, it's, it, what it is, it's a, it's a good sign. So Poland was the first country to technically send tanks when it sent T-72s back last year. It's kind of the, the Czechs, the Slovaks have done the same. So it's, it's kind of, while I'm sure the Ukrainians would want kind of Western main battle tanks, they're not going to turn their nose up at any kind of heavy armor that can be delivered especially ones that they kind of they have the parts and the know-how to use they will probably be in the country a lot quicker than the leopard twos the challenger twos or the us abrams tanks because they're going to take a degree of training on those to kind of maintain them and operate them so this is this is uh yes the good good news for um ukraine and it what it does is it goes to show kind of poland's steadfast commitment as one of not only kind of europe's uh main contributors but the world's main contributors of of kind of weapons and aid to ukraine one of the big questions of course that we've we've touched on this week has been the question of logistics with ukraine receiving or which is going to receive tanks from different countries different sorts of tanks which have different uh logistical sort of supply trains you've spoken to british mp the chairman of the defense select committee tobias elwood it was a fascinating conversation fascinating interview joe can you tell us about it what did he say he um 
wanted to make the point that the West is it's obviously right to keep on donating weapons and it should keep on donating weapons. But ultimately, it's an unsustainable practice because um, you have to you, you don't want to just help Ukraine in the short term. You actually want to to kind of guarantee its long term defences in the future. And ultimately, as kind of Ukraine chooses its path to move away from Russia, away from kind of Soviet military tactics and doctrines and systems and move towards a NATO kind of based operation and potentially one day join NATO who knows they've applied to do so but that's obviously um a discussion that will come down the line after the war is over but so what Tobias Elwood made a point of was potentially the west cannot maintain its support for Ukraine forever so it should look about look at the possibility of creating a massive arms factory and he um he proposed it for Poland, but it doesn't have to be there. Poland obviously just makes logistical sense because it's a neighbouring country. Most of the West's military aid goes through goes through Poland anyway when it's uh, flown into Poland and then trained over into into Ukraine. And he said that the Ukrainians would ultimately be able to pick what this factory makes, and they should be able to do things like make artillery howitzers out of kind of by license, um, potentially make Leopard two tanks on license. But then they could actually then choose what is made they will then build systems to be coherent and collaborate with each other because at the moment we are sending them different artillery systems which don't all use the same the same kind of tools to fix them they don't use the same ammunition but what we can get to a point is we can he was saying that we can build these stockpiles for ukraine that will all kind of yeah will work together essentially they will they will use the same the same systems um because one thing just to just to kind of note on tanks which is a funny a funny um kind of inter kind of story is the challenger 2 that britain has donated needs two sets of tools to build because the uh the hull is i believe in in imperial measurements while the uh the kind of the cannon and the turret area is a metric so that's one thing that ukrainians are going to have to grapple with but that's not going to be unique the leopard 2 tank will have its own systems to be fixed and its own ammunition the abrams uses a different i believe it uses aviation or a type of aviation fuel where the other tanks use diesel so that's it's all like these logistical questions to to think of and um tobias elwood was basically saying what we should do is we should build ukraine items and gear to their to their their basically to their specs what they what they need and how they can fix them and it uses like kind of single 155 millimeter ammunition for artillery and various uh whatever ammunition needed for tanks or other or maybe just small arms but then he also said that this is actually part of the west needing to come up with a an actual genuine strategy about how it supports ukraine but also for its own the west's own benefit um it would be no shock to our listeners that one of the most kind of concerning elements of gifting Ukraine weapons from their, their Western countries' military stocks is that runs those stockpiles low. And that the US, the UK, France, Germany, whoever you ask, will obviously say that they won't be able to do this forever because they are running their own their own stockpiles drastically and dangerously low in some cases. And they 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 would argue that they could only gift so much because they actually ultimately need to have their militaries armed just in case in the unlikely event that they need to go to war. So they, they kind of it creates a double edged sword while helping Ukraine is something everyone wants to do. Everyone doesn't want to run their 
their military stockpiles drastically low. So having this kind of Ukrainian factory on NATO soil in, in Poland, so it could basically be built by the West, made made by Western engineers, you can bring in Western arms companies, you would give Ukraine an independent source of weapons, but you would also then allow other factories around the world to start replenishing Western countries' arms and stockpiles back up again, uh, whether it be building new tanks, new artillery systems, uh, like the arch so the archers is it going to be new patriot systems that have been moved into ukraine that then need to be replaced but so and so it's so it's, it, that's that's the other element element to this and and i'll stop there now that's absolutely fascinating i mean so at the moment just just to be clear at the moment this is just tobias elwood's idea and he'd like to get some support for it he wants to he's sort of putting this out there to see to see who else is going to say yes is, is that right or are the plans slightly further along than that it's 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 his idea. It took inspiration from Taiwan, who, which has built a microchips factory in the United States. And we also know the concerns around Taiwan is that they fear that China could invade kind of any day. And once China has control of Taiwan, the world's kind of main microchip producing country will be cut off and everyone will be um, will be uh, kind of, yeah, in in hock to uh, in hock to China for and China would basically have control over the the kind of international chip market, which we kind of need so drastically for everything from kind of you know, fridge freezers, computers, mobile phones, kettles, and and everything. So um, yeah, that's that's kind of one element that he has basically taken inspiration for. But I, the the conversation has gone has gone further. The, the, he he's trying to basically lobby the British government to take a leading role in this and. Basically saying that there's a there's a gap in global leadership on Ukraine when it comes to actually thinking of a genuine long term strategy, and he says that Britain can fill that gap and kind of lead on this. I think the polls have been spoken to, and they've they've kind of not like they've not turned down the idea. They quite like the idea of having a of having a factory in Poland that would be able to support Ukraine, but then ultimately it would just it would yeah it would create jobs there, and it's it's a no bad thing on that front. So yes, it's it's still very very kind of early days and. You'd find it hard to find any um, kind of concrete plans on this because there are there there are obvious um, obvious concerns about um, people would say why why do you why do you want to build a Ukrainian military facility on NATO territory when it's not a NATO member not covered by NATO's Article Five uh, defense clause so yeah that that's obviously concerns but you but I think then we can kind of uh, allay those fears by saying that Jezhov Airport in in Poland near the Ukrainian border. Um, is used as the main kind of logistical hub to get weapons into Ukraine. It is it's protected by numerous batteries of Patriot systems, Patriot air defense systems. So it's probably one of the most uh, heavily guarded uh, airports in the world. Uh, so it's home to a U.S. military base as well. So we could look at those concerns and stuff like that, and they can they can be easily worked around. But yeah, it's 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 still very early days. Thanks very much for that, Joe. Just one more question from me before we go to Richard and Lviv. And thank you very much, Richard, for listening to all of this. Don't worry, we'll get to you very shortly. Um, Joe, you, you were, you've been writing about this ongoing story, this this diplomatic fallout between Turkey and Sweden over the burning of a copy of the Koran in front of the embassy in in Sweden. You found out a lot more about the the the, the people who did this. Can you tell us what you what you found? Yeah, so I won't I won't take credit for it because Roland Oliphant, our senior foreign correspondent who is in Ukraine for us at the moment actually wrote the story for today's paper and it's available online for people that want to see but basically there's this I, I, I've been following as part of my as part of my beat is I cover NATO and I was in Madrid when Turkey kind of 
allowed and finally relented and said it would back Sweden and Finland joining NATO after they kind of ended years and years of military neutrality to decide they wanted to join the kind of transatlantic alliance. But Turkey basically made them sign up to a, the Nordic countries sign up to a joint kind of declaration, a memorandum of understanding that said that they would fight, uh, do more to crack down on kind of terror. And basically the fears of Turkey are that Sweden and Finland have been a bit of a, a kind of become a safe haven for Kurdish militant groups and the PKK is one of is one of the kind of groups that they allude to. So there's been a, a string of kind of incident going since that moment. We've had protests in Sweden where the um about the a supposed treatment of, of Kurds, because they've they've the Kurdish community, which is quite large in Sweden, feared that they were going to suddenly be have people deported uh, deported to Turkey and extradited to Turkey as one thing, because p- part of the memorandum of understanding was going to be Ankara, Sweden and Finland would discuss more on what they can do about extradition. There was recently a effigy of President Erdogan, the Turkish leader, subjected to a mock-style execution. It was hung in Stockholm. And then most recently, there was this incident, literally a few days ago, and I know Francis spoke on this yesterday, about a, a copy of the Quran that was burnt. But actually, what we found out is the person behind this is a far-right journalist with links to the Kremlin. And he organised this stunt, allegedly, which has essentially threatened Sweden's attempts to join NATO. So this a guy called uh, Chang Frick, who has previously worked for Russia Today and its sister agency, Ruptly, paid the administrative fee for the for the demonization outside the demonstration sorry outside the turkish embassy in stockholm where a man yeah basically torched the quran so he's uh his feed has shown him like posing with putin t-shirts and and calendars and stuff but it's basically this 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 guy and it's it kind of seems to be a a kind of a kremlin linked attempt to undermine sweden's uh sweden's attempts to join nato and that's that's one of one of Russia's main fears is that NATO kind of enlarges and it's always spoken about we've not wanted NATO to kind of grow further. And uh, well, it was one of it was one of um, Vladimir Putin's stated stated reasons for uh, invading Ukraine in the start. In the start, he didn't want to see NATO grow, but obviously that's kind of slaps him massively in the face. Um, because, uh, yeah, NATO has now become a two members stronger in that. But yeah, so it looks like this is a... Um, a kind of a a Russian attempt to undermine Sweden's NATO application by having a Kremlin sympathizer um yeah involved in the torching of a Quran in in outside the, the Turkish embassy in uh, in um in Stockholm. Well thank you very much uh, Joe and Francis for all of those updates. Um I think we've covered a huge amount in a short time. Uh Richard Woodruff, thank you so much for uh, for for joining us, thank you so much for for waiting um, to, to, for us to come to you. Um, I'll let you introduce yourself, really. So, could you just tell us um, a little bit about yourself, where you are, and what you're doing? Hello, everyone. Thank you very much, David, for having me on, and Francis and Joe. Don't mind at all about uh, the weight. It was interesting to hear a bit more about the tanks, and uh, I, I did laugh when Joe was talking about the two two different systems of metric and imperial tools that we have now be having to send over to Ukraine so that they're able to. Uh, repair these tanks. But yes, I'm uh, Richard Woodruff, originally from Crowborough, Tunbridge in England. 
And I've been in Lviv now for eight months, volunteering at Lviv Volonterski Kuchnia, which is just a kitchen for the frontline soldiers. And effectively, I founded the Twitter space for that, which is Frontline Kitchen, where we cover uh, everything that we're doing in, in English, because everything previously had been done in Ukrainian. And this is just connecting to the Western English-speaking audience. So, Richard, we'll come back to, to your story and how, how you got out there and how you ended up in Lviv. But could you just tell us a little bit more about Frontline Kitchen? How big is it? Who, who does it? And wh- where, where are you sending the food that you make? So the Frontline Kitchen was founded by Luda and Oksana nine years back. And it was initially to supply the guys in the east with, with dried out rations because there wasn't enough food going down that way. Uh, and now we're, we were sending to Bakhmut and Solidar, and previously before that, we were supplying the guys at Liberated Herson, and every every single one of our meals goes straight to the front lines. There's nothing that's going to a, a barracks where it's not needed. It's just, just for the guys on the front line. And it must be quite an operation out there. Could you just sort of walk us through? I know this is audio, so this might be a bit difficult, but could you paint us a picture of what the frontline kitchen looks like? Yeah, so very simply, it's 50 people crammed into a very small kitchen in the heart of Lviv. And we're all standing around a metal table, cutting up beetroot, cabbage, um, carrots, uh, and everything else that goes into borscht and halopsi and various different soups. And then those ingredients which we've cut up go into a shredder onto drying racks. And these dryers are about the, the size of your washing machine at home. And then that's put on to dry for about 12 hours. And once all the ingredients are dried out, we take them from the kitchen in the centre of Lviv to an undisclosed location a tiny bit further out where we kind of package up all of those dried ingredients to a very specific recipe that the founders have been working on for the past past nine years. And then once that's packaged all up, we bring it back to the kitchen where every 30 minutes we have a member of the army or one of our guys that are just driving in the direction of the front lines. So yeah, every 30 minutes we have a different car coming to pick up the finished meals and we have another car turning up to drop off kind of raw produce and ingredients. Looking at your the social media feeds, it looks like you've sort of branched out recently from just food to things like drones as well. Could you tell us a little bit about this? What, what else have you been doing? Yeah, so the drone funding really came about around around the Christmas period. And the only reason it came about was we had one of our dryers break just before I went away. I went back for Christmas for a, for a week. And when that dryer broke, I kind of put the message up on Twitter and said, hey, guys, like, our machine's just conked out. We're, we're losing a massive percentage of our drying capabilities. Is anyone able to help? Does anyone have a dryer, you know, laying around in their living room? And the response was immediate and amazing. And uh, we had uh, a few generous donors that reached out immediately and said, yep, order it now. Um, so within maybe six or seven hours, we had a new dryer on its way to us. And then once I'd managed to fund that, the founders kind of realized and said, hey, like we, we have guys in Bakhmut that are constantly asking us for various bits of kit. But because they'd only been targeting a Ukrainian audience, they, they'd never had anyone that was able to donate any kind of real large sum of money to be able to help out. So once I'd kind of shown, hey, look, there are people out there that want to help Ukraine, they instantly said to me, hey, Rich, one of our drones has just gone down in Bakhmut. We need another DJI Matrice 30. And that's about $12,000. And I instantly just thought to myself, I need to get this done and I need to get it done now. Because any second that drone's not in the sky uh, is every hour, at least, we'd be losing another man because we don't have sights over what's going on or we can't correct our artillery fire 
in the right direction. So when they said that to me over Christmas, I, I didn't sleep for, I think it was about four days of fundraising. But after those four days, we got the funds raised, immediately pressed the button on the order. And now there's a, a video with the guys on the front lines holding the matrix, looking very happy, just saying thank you so much to Twitter and everyone that made it possible, because that really is the, the best thing that we can do to save Ukrainian lives is give them eyes in the sky so we can tell when the Russians are coming. But also we can actually make sure that the hundreds of thousands of dollars of artillery shells that we're sending that way uh, re- the target rather than an empty field. Could we talk a little bit about you and your journey in the last year? Could you take us back to last February? What made you decide to go to Ukraine and and how did that journey unfold? How did you end up in Lviv? It sounds kind of crazy you saying last February now rather than this February because yeah it really has nearly been a year or so since the beginning of the war. I started off just watching what was unfolding on YouTube from the very night of that, that 20, 24th of February. And I watched the news probably for 10 days straight, 24 7 uh, or 24 hours a day. I had it playing on YouTube by my bedside. So I constantly knew what was going on. And after about 10 days, I realized it wasn't too good for my health to be consuming so much media of everything that was going on. And it was just breaking me down. So After those 10 days, I I switched off the news and got about planning exactly how I was going to get out from where I was at that moment, which was I was just renting a room in an apartment at the time and how I was going to get out to Ukraine and how I could actually help. Uh, Initially, when Zelensky put out the call to come and fight, I was instantly going, yes, yes, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. And then after, I think it was on the second day, Zelensky turned around and said, well, we don't have enough, we don't have enough body armor or guns anymore. So effectively, you're going to be there with a Molotov cocktail in the streets of Kyiv. So I thought perhaps I shouldn't, I shouldn't risk my life and, and die within the first couple of days. And I will be use, more useful to Ukraine if I can actually think about a way to help them in the longer term. So I got about planning and uh, researched all over the internet how I can help in Ukraine. And there wasn't a single article, there wasn't a, a single website that said, ah, you can volunteer at this kitchen or to rebuild. But I saw on Facebook quite a few posts said, just go to Lviv volunteer, go to Lviv train station and there'll be someone there and you can ask them. And that, that's exactly what I did. I, I kind of hopped on a plane and then a train arrived in Lviv and there was some ladies standing outside the train station that told me about the kitchen. And that was how I, I kind of ended up arriving to the kitchen. But very fortunately, now there's a whole website that's been created, uh, volunteeringukraine.com. And it actually has like the volunteer kitchen and a couple of other opportunities. So people don't have to do the same thing as me, where it's just turning up at the Viv train station and saying, hey, how can I help? I don't, I don't know if that covered everything that you asked, David. No, absolutely. I mean, what, what was the initial reaction of, of the Ukrainians you, you were volunteering with? How, how did they react to this? man arrived from from england saying i want to help what what do they what do they what do they say to you when i arrived uh, within the first minute or so i met the one of the co-founders luda and i remember luda standing by the door talking to an elderly gentleman and i walk over and say uh volunteer like can i can i volunteer and she just gives me this very strange look of who who is this englishman and it's just turned up in our yard asking to help out and yeah she just pointed over to a table with a box of carrots and kind of gave me a knife and said, yeah, cut, like, cut cut these and showed me how. And then I just started cutting up carrots. And uh, yeah, a few hundred boxes of carrots later, and a, a week later, they finally realized that this strange man wasn't going to be leaving their, their car park 
which is where we do most of the cutting. Um, and then, yeah, they de decided to accept me into the family. And could you tell us a little bit about some of the people you work with? I mean, there might be other volunteers um, from, from all over the world and, and the Ukrainians as well. Yes. So the majority of the people volunteering there are Ukrainian. Prior to my arrival, I think there was only one or two Americans that had kind of come, come through the kitchen. Um, whereas now it's about half of the volunteers from overseas. And that's just from putting posts on, on Facebook or Twitter saying, please, can people come help? So we've had people come from New Zealand, coming from Australia. It was funny with those two, two countries because they kept arguing about who came the furthest. Uh, <laughs> and we've had people from Germany, France, England, uh, honestly, all, all over the shop, Georgia. But yeah, my, the, the people that are always there and will obviously not leave are the Ukrainians because the foreign helpers come for two, three months and then obviously have to return home to their normal lives uh, with their, their visa-free allowance used up. So you have the two co-founders, Oksana and Luda, which we endearingly call Big Boss. Um, we have Julia, who is my number one friend at the kitchen. She is my translator. And uh, it was actually after the first week of me being there and no one speaking English at all. She comes along and she speaks, she speaks relatively good English and obviously uh, Ukrainian because she's from Zaporizhia. And she was my translator for the first month or so. And every conversation with the Babusias was through, uh, through Julia. And uh, yeah, every, every other volunteer there, they, they are in their 60s, 70s or so. So, so all Babusias and just the most loving, caring people in the world. And they're from, you know, all over Ukraine, from currently occupied territory. We have Ira and Ola from Kherson. And the, the day that Kherson was liberated, we had, they brought in a bottle of bubbly and we, we had a big celebration and hugging and crying. And it was just emotionally so, so much to, to deal with. And quite a few of them have family members and friends on the front lines. One of the Babusias last week, handed me her telephone midway through me cutting carrots and said it's my son please can you speak to my son and I said yeah yeah of course I can speak to your son and she said he, he's in Bakhmut and my heart completely stopped and I froze and I just I had no idea in that moment what to say to this guy that was literally on the very front lines giving his life for us so yeah just just said hi for a couple of seconds and was, was pretty shell-shocked as to what to say next um if that answered everything, David. Absolutely. I mean, there's one thing I'd like to come back to there. But before that, you mentioned just then, you know, you spend a lot of time talking to people who, who are fighting and you have contact with, with the military and everything. Can you give us a, a sense of the kind of stories they tell you? What, what's your impression of what the fighting is, is like? What, 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 what do you hear from your U Ukrainian friends and contacts? Fortunately, Oksana and Luda, the, the founders, I mean, they have every, every single military contact you could imagine. They are the ones that are they're constantly getting the news back from the front lines. And fortunately for all of the Ukrainians and for the foreign volunteers at the kitchen, they, they shelter us from 99% of everything that's going on because it is absolutely horrific. And of course, we'd like to say everything was all rosy and gravy on the front lines and that we're... we're uh, kicking butt and not taking any losses. But yeah, the reality is it's uh, absolutely brutal. Um, one of the craziest stories comes from uh, a guy that I met in my first few days in Lviv called Dimko. Uh, and he runs a military fund uh, for the guy, guys on the front uh, called Digaspor. And he was saying that he no longer sleeps in hotels or accommodations when he's doing these aid runs to the very, very front lines. 
because 50% of the time they would find out where he was and then they would actually blow up the hotel or accommodation um, that he was trying to take a break at. So that turns into him driving for 20, 30 hours at a time with no sleep, um, just straight to the front lines, dropping off what he needs and then coming back. And uh, it's the harsh reality that if you try and stop or take a break for a second in those environments, you will lose your life. And we have lost a few of our drivers that are going to the front lines to deliver our food and other aid. So, yeah, it's re- really, really horrible and harsh on the front. Just one observation from me, which will become a question. You know, when, you, when, you, when we listen to you talking about this, you, you're saying us, our guys. It's clear you feel part of this as, as much as they do. I was kind of wondering how, how you'd think of that. How would you talk about that? Was there a moment when you felt that you were, you were involved as, as, as a Ukrainian? I was just speaking to this about one of the other volunteers yesterday. It, it's odd that in the first instance, I used to say, oh, the Ukrainian army or Ukrainians. And, and now it's like, oh, boys. It's like, oh, our guys, you know. Um, and I've, I think it came mainly actually from the complete acceptance of Ukrainians that I am one of them, that I am complete family to them now. And this is with, you know, a few words being spoken um badly in ukrainian from me to them and mainly just hugging and laughing at my badly spoken ukrainian yeah they're 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 completely family to me and after volunteering for nearly eight months now every every single day and every moment i've spent more time with these people than i probably have my my real family back in england and i don't think i could do this if i wasn't ukrainian if if i didn't feel like i am ukrainian now and we, we always like to joke in the kitchen because I'm, I'm wearing five trezops at all times. So I, I have my belt, my um, Azov-style bracelet. I have my Zelensky top on, my Zelensky, well, not my Zelensky necklace, but my Zelensky uh, trezop. No, I said that wrong. Trezop necklace. Sorry, I'm losing myself now. And a T-shirt. So I, I'm, I'm all trezop tops. And that's the, uh, the symbol of the Ukrainian armed forces. Yeah, I, I really, really do feel like family. And they've made me feel that way. And uh, yeah, they're, they're our European neighbours. I don't know how I couldn't feel Ukrainian at this point after everything that we've kind of all gone through together. The tears that we've shred. And yeah, I, I don't know if I've answered that correctly, David. No, I think so. I mean, I think it's kind of a difficult thing to approach, isn't it? So, so thank you very much for, for doing that. I mean, I, just just on that a little bit more, have you ever have, have, have there been moments of culture clash for you? Have there been moments when you, you, you found it difficult to, 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 to be accepted? Have, have people has, you know, you, you've described it, it sounds like a very positive experience for you. Have there ever, ever been moments that weren't like that? No, from the very first second. Uh, although they did look at me oddly, like, who is this British guy that's turned up on our doorstep? There was never any any animosity, if that's the correct word. There was never any kind of negativity or not non-acceptance. I think they just saw how dedicated I was to helping them out. Um, and they were they were completely, completely down for me being there. And, uh, yeah, now they say it doesn't feel the same, even if I'm gone for a day from the kitchen. Um yeah, it's, it's a completely different environment and it's not as much laughing or, you know, music playing. Um, culturally different. Uh, there are some funny things like the, the ladies in the kitchen, regardless of the weight of the object that needs to be lifted, they will say, Richard, can you can you carry this to somewhere else? Because in their minds, it's the, the, the men that do the lifting of anything. And then when you would like a coffee, uh, the ladies would always say, no, 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 like we're, we're getting the coffee, we're making the coffee or making the food or 
you know, washing something up in the sink. Uh, no matter how much you try and fight it and say, no, it's fine, I can do it. They're like, no, we're looking after you. And like, you always just lift the heavy stuff. Or if a van comes, like, you always do the unloading. Um, and there was one time where I, I'd just finished a 12-hour day or something at the kitchen. And it was, yeah, 10 o'clock at night. And one of the uh, ladies has been volunteering at the kitchen for five years now. She calls me and she said, Richard, like, you need to come back. Like, after I'd just finished, I'd got changed. So I was going for some food. Um, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll come back. Cause she said, there's a van, two tons of cabbages that need to be unloaded from this van. And I was like, geez, well, obviously that's heavy work, heavy lifting. So I'll, I'll, I'll run back and help. And it turns out, uh, that these lettuces or cabbages were, uh, just individual, just stacked up in the back of this van. So really it was the weight of one cabbage that had to be moved from one place to another. Um, obviously just a thousand times. And uh, so she was completely capable of doing herself with the others. But it was, uh, no, this is a man's job. So you, you have to go, you have to come back, you know, after your long shift and then, you know, do, do another long shift, um, which, which I laughed about with her after and uh, took the mix saying, you know, you could have done this just as easily as I could. But um, that's the, the reality of the difference in the, the cultures there with in terms of lifting stuff. Well, thank you, Richard, for talking us through that. Um, Joe and Francis, you've been listening to all of this. Would you, um, would you, do you have any questions for Richard and his life in Lviv at the, vol- at the uh, Frontline Kitchen? Yes. Hi, Richard. Really interesting hearing about your experience. You have your finger in two newsy pies, if you'll excuse the culinary metaphor. Uh, you hear the Ukrainian stories. You hear the British and Western perspectives on the war. I just wonder whether you have a sense of perhaps or can comment on differences between what you've seen in Ukraine and what perhaps how people might be reporting on the war, Any whether they be cultural, whether they be political, just any nuances that we may not see as readily and as easily as you might there. Uh, I think the biggest thing for me is uh, every bit of media that I absorb now is very much uh, kind of pro-Ukrainian, of course, and it's uh, Ukrainian sources, whereas any time I see the Western media, um, yes, it's talking about the war that's going on, but it highlights Russia a lot and talks about Russia a lot um, and what's going on with Russia. And it's it's so much different to the media here because everything that we want to hear about is about Ukraine and, and what Ukraine's doing to win the war and how we will win and what we're going to be doing. Whereas uh, the, the world's media seems to be talking about both, both sides of the equation. And we really don't care like what's going on on the, the Russian side or the Russian sphere. All we want to know is that we're doing the right thing and that the rest of the world is supporting us. And Russia effectively can just, uh, you know, close itself off behind a wall and leave it there. And uh, we just want to hear about Ukraine building up, Ukraine winning and um, how we're going to get to the next steps. Uh, So, yeah, it it, it seems like the global media is kind of covering a lot of, oh, what is happening in Russia? And we don't want to hear about that. We just want to hear about how we're going to win the war. And um, yeah, if that makes any sense. Yes, absolutely. And just one other from me, if I may, which is obviously a lot of the conversations now are about the duration of this war and the idea that it's it's got a long way to go, unfortunately. What are your long term plans? Are you committed to staying there for as long as it takes? Yes, I've uh, resided myself to the fact that I'm going to be here till the end of the war. Um, when I did go back to England very shortly for Christmas, um, 
it's so weird speaking to people that just say, oh, yeah, Ukraine, like, oh, um, that's terrible what's going on out there and, and not really understanding. And uh, even the people that are amazing and they've brought Ukrainians into their home uh, and they're like, yeah, we, uh, we have some Ukrainians living with us. And I say, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, and like, where, where in Ukraine are they from? And they go, oh, uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, and you just think the, the, these people are living with you and you, you haven't asked the most basic questions. And it just seems that any time I'm outside of Ukraine, anywhere, people just don't understand. Uh, and I think the only exception to that would be uh, kind of Poland, where they're, they're obviously so, so um, pro everything that's going on in Ukraine and uh, so anti-Russian that um, you can kind of really understand that they, they are spending every second of their days thinking about us and what's going on here. Um, and I can't kind of bring myself to be in an environment again where every conversation isn't about Ukraine um, and our battle for victory. Um, and also, I can't leave Ukraine because that would take away meals from Ukrainian soldiers and reduce our ability to win. Um, and now that we're funding drones for the front lines and medical supplies and even supplying local hospitals with um, medical equipment, which means we're actually saving lives just from that medical kit, um, I could never leave now until the end of the war. Um, and I wouldn't want to. I couldn't imagine anything worse than laying on a beach right now with a beer in my hand when our guys are still dying. Um, I can't, yeah, I can't take a second off um, to answer your question. Thanks very much, Francis, for your questions. Um, Joe, would you like to come in? No, that's uh, really, really fascinating. I must uh, say I, I quite like your uh, your little fella and the, uh, the Shiba Inu in the uh, chef's hat. Um, but no, what you what you're saying is like really fascinating um, in terms of saying like our ability to win. Have, have have you kind of taken on the mantra and almost kind of taken Ukrainian nationality? I notice that a lot on my on my kind of travels through through the country. You'd meet uh, Western volunteers, and they and a lot of them have said we like after this is over, we're going to stay in the country and make our make our homes here because um, I I don't don't know what it is. I can say it's the the great hospitality. I was. I was always made to feel completely at home by by lots of kind of lovely people. Even strangers that we met on the met on the street would bring us in for teas and coffees and cakes and freshly cooked bread and stuff just to just to just to tell to tell us their story and how they how they're coping with what's going on. So, just, so do you, do you, do you kind of get that feeling that a lot of Western volunteers do actually become like adopted Ukrainians and it then reflects in the language and stuff that you use? Yeah, so any volunteer that uh, comes to the kitchen with us, um, most of the time they end up not leaving or they keep extending and extending and extending um, because they don't want to leave because they've been made to feel so unbelievably at home. Um, even if you're there for the first day, the, the ladies in the kitchen will make you the most amazing borscht of your life and constantly offer you cookies and biscuits and fresh cakes that they've made and coffee. Um, so there they are grade A experts in uh, hospitality. Um, in terms of uh, if I'm planning on staying in Ukraine, um, really, I'm just here for the war. Uh, I'm here to help. Uh, and then once the war is over, uh, I will go back to life in Spain or try and check out some of South America because I, I really need a warm climate in my life. Um, I love the Ukrainian people, but it's not uh, somewhere that I'm planning on living on living within in the future. 
Um, of course, until we liberate Crimea, and then I can lay on a beach down there or spend some time in Odessa. But yes, uh, I, I'm the standard Brit that needs a, a Spanish climate. Um, so yeah, my, my plan is to head back that way uh, immediately after we've won the war. Um, but only for probably two or three weeks, because then I need to get back to Ukraine and start uh, rebuilding the houses um, in the liberated areas. Uh, that is my, my kind of ne- next plan is to get back and do some rebuilding. And and do, do, you, do you think that the kind of the kind generosity will of, of, of Westerners extend extend to that kind of moment? Because um, it's obviously one it's, it's one thing kind of, yeah, helping helping Ukraine um, during the war, but then it, it, Ukraine's going to need years and years and years of assistance. And it's a, uh, do you, do you, do you kind of, you, you're, you've said you're going to go back and build houses, but do you get, get the feeling from your kind of other uh, Western friends that are over in Ukraine helping out that they'll do the same? I'm not too sure uh, if, if the Western friends will also come back um, because I don't know in terms of their level of uh, kind of commitment to Ukraine. Um, I think quite a few of the people that have come and volunteered will definitely come back and help cook at the kitchen. But I don't know if they're going to volunteer all their time to be uh, rebuilding after, because maybe once the war is uh, ended, then uh, Ukraine will slide off the radar um, in terms of volunteering. But I I think in terms of tourism and the, the people that have now discovered that Ukraine exists and has seen the unbelievably beautiful videos and photos um, effectively tourism campaigns of the country. Um, this country is insanely beautiful. Just, just talking about uh, Lviv, the architecture is um, kind of Polish, Austrian, uh, and every single restaurant and bar is designed to the, the highest possible standard that you probably wouldn't even see somewhere in London. Um, and people probably wouldn't assume that. Uh, kind of talking about Ukraine previously, they may have, may have thought it was run down in some way. Um, but it, it is a beautiful, beautiful kind of European city in Lviv. And I visited Kiev as well. And that's also incredibly beautiful. Um, and the Carpathian Mountains. So I'm sure immediately after the war has ended, there's going to be floods of people on a tourism point of view coming to Ukraine. And then from that, they'll see everything that needs help with and needs doing and speak to locals and fall in love with the country. Um, so I'm really seeing like a massive, massive growth in Ukraine and everyone wanting to flood here kind of after the war. And then I think from that, then obviously Ukraine will get more help. Um, but yeah, in terms of the volunteers that we've had, uh, I, I think only a few of them are going to be coming back for the kind of rebuilding process. But we've got lots of strong Ukrainians, so I'm sure we can do it as well ourselves. Well, thank you very much, Richard. Um, we're going to just go now to some um, final updates with Francis before I come back to all of you and just ask for your final thoughts ahead of the weekend. And that's, of course, I think, as part of your final thought, Richard, it would be lovely to know uh, from you. We've discussed this before we came on, but what have you learned about making good Ukrainian food and what is your advice to us? But first, let's go to Francis for some final updates from you. Thanks, David. And I'll include my final thoughts as part of these. So I just wanted to return quickly before we ended to this ongoing Ukrainian corruption saga, which Roland Roland Oliphant, of course, who's been covering this for us and has been reporting on the podcast this week. He's got another update, which is that uh, Zelensky's party has kicked out an MP for violating a ban on overseas travel in the latest example of high profile moves to crack down on the abuse of office. So the member of parliament is for Zelensky's party, as I say, 
slave servant of the people. We understand that uh, his name is Mr. B- Mr. Shevchenko, travelled to Vietnam last month and is currently in Thailand. And what he said was a work trip to drum up support for the Ukrainian cause. But the party chiefs are having none of it. They've said today that no one sent him on a diplomatic mission and that he was in violation of a Security Council order announced by Zelensky this week, barring officials from overseas travel. There's been some very strong remarks from the head of Servant of the People's Parliamentary Faction on Telegram saying, I see that not everyone understands how deputies should behave in wartime. Now, I mention this because in many ways you could say this is quite a small story, but I mention it because it's clear, as I've mentioned earlier on in the week, that Ukraine is incredibly sensitive to these charges of corruption and Vladimir Zelensky is doing everything in his power to stamp out any accusations of that from within his own party and within the government. So I don't think this is in any way an example of, of systematic corruption in Ukraine. Far, far from it. I think rather it's an attempt to quash any semblance of corruption in, in in Ukraine at what is, you know, a precarious diplomatic moment. So I think it's just worth drawing attention to that. And no doubt there'll be some more updates on this next week. It feels as well this is being deliberately timed, that it's not as if all of this stuff is uh, has only just been uncovered. It feels like they've decided that actually some of these things have been going on for long enough and they feel that now is a good moment in which to clear it all out and to, uh, to, to put us, as I say, stamp it all out. Uh, finally, I just wanted to end with a story which really struck me, which is the Auschwitz Museum have said that because of the war in Ukraine, Russia will be excluded from the upcoming ceremony, which I imagine will be taking place as we speak, marking 78 years since the Red Army liberated the Nazi death camp. It is Holocaust Memorial Day today, and it just really struck me, and I'll read the quote in full. A spokesman for the museum has said, given the aggression against a free and independent Ukraine, representatives of the Russian Federation have not been invited to attend this year's commemoration. I hope that it will change in future, but we have a long way to go. Russia will need an extremely long time and very deep self-examination after this conflict in order to return to gatherings of the civilised world. And as I say, these are pretty unprecedented remarks. It's never happened before, but it speaks to the strength of feeling, I think, amongst many, many people that the hideous acts of crimes that we've seen in places like Bucha and elsewhere in Ukraine are beyond the pale and that there has to be consequences for that in terms of Russia's standing in even commemorations such as this which for decades now have been international in nature i should say also that president Zelensky has tweeted some remarks about holocaust memorial day he said today honors the memory of millions of victims of the holocaust we know and remember that indifference kills along with hatred that is why it is so important that everyone who values life should show determination eternal memory to victims of the holocaust Now, Hannah Arendt, famous political theorist, wrote a very interesting book, a very famous book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, where she famously analysed the banality of evil in relation to the crimes of the Holocaust. What she meant by that, in part, was the lack of a common measure between the gigantic scale on which the crimes were committed and the smallness of the persons who were among those most responsible. 
And I just wonder whether one day the same will be said about some of the perpetrators of the hideous war crimes that have been committed in Ukraine and that we've had to describe on this podcast. But I think it's also important to remember too the banality of the good, the good people who are sacrificing their time and of course their lives in order to do the right thing. They rarely make the headlines, but their actions are just as heroic, if not more so. And I'll end there for today. Thank you very much, uh, Francis. Joe Barnes. So, yeah, my um, final thoughts would go again on on tanks and the kind of the the rush to get these tanks over to Ukraine. Um, but what I would put on a, a word of caution is there's a lot of kind of numbers floating around. So uh, Spain could send up to 53 tanks, allegedly. Um, the Dutch, who don't actually own any of their own Leopard 2 tanks, are considering to send 18. I think we've got to uh, be slightly cautious on the numbers and not over-egg at the top end of those predictions because um you don't want to kind of hear disappointed ukrainians who have been asking for between three and four hundred uh main battle tanks when they only receive a hundred or so in the future so yeah i'd i'd kind of err on the side of caution when it comes to delivering the actual numbers and whether the west is going to be absolutely so steadfast in doing that um we interestingly heard from mikhailo podliak the other day, uh, both Roland and I spoke to him in separate occasions. It was put into one um, one story that we we all worked on, um, and that his message was um, very interesting. That uh, while everyone's kind of tilted towards, oh, do we give Ukraine fighter jets next? He said that we have to um, we have to increase Ukraine's military's ability to hit back. Um, Bit, uh, hit back um, at rear at kind of targets at the rear of the Russian front line. So they're, they're wanting missiles that can, can't just hit targets at 50 kilometres. They want to hit targets at 100, 200 kilometres. So that's what I think we're going to see the Western military support turn to soon is the discussion of how do we arm Ukraine with longer range missiles. And I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much, uh, Francis and Joe. Uh, Richard, as our guest, would you like to go with your final thought? Yes, I will uh, provide you with your borscht recipe that you've been chasing me for for months now, David. Uh, <laughs> as we were laughing about just this morning, uh, the, the real recipe is to cook with love, a good mood and desire. And uh, the most important thing, of course, is a very high quality produce to go with that. Um, but to give you the real recipe, uh, you have 400 grams of uh beef, chicken or pork, 400 grams of cabbage, 300 grams of potato, 200 grams of beetroot, a couple of carrots, parsley root, parsnip and celery, a bell pepper, an onion, some tomato puree uh, and some oil, garlic and dill for uh, salting on top. Um, And then what you need to do with that is just boil the borscht, oh sorry, cut the beets into strips, add salt, pepper, pour into a pan, uh, fry in oil, adding some tomato puree, bringing to half-cooked, onions, carrots, parsley, root, parsnip and celery all cut up, and then those should be fried too. And then once all of that's done, you throw the potatoes into some broth, bring it to half-cooked, and then put the cabbage and cook for another 10 minutes, and then season it with all of those uh, vegetables that you've just fried up and let it boil for another five minutes. 
Once that's all done, you garnish with some garlic, green dill, and parsley, and you leave for 15 or 20 minutes before serving. So that's, uh, that's how to make the perfect Ukrainian borscht. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.